So Cody Brawl, welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome to the journey. Um, the, let me just share a little bit about what the journey is about. The journey is uh, just a show of having ordinary people come on and and talk about how maybe they've had certain types of setbacks in their life and what they what what was their maybe life before that setback like and then what happened during that setback but most importantly what did they do with that setback and how are they living um living through that now um some people it's like uh, failing forward or some people have transformed through that pain and found some purpose and i know um, we've gotten to know each other over the last year or so and uh, you started working at kp uh kp counseling in january and are doing a phenomenal job uh with everything that you're doing here and helping people. Um, but uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Why don't you uh, maybe first start off with telling us what do you, when Cody has an opportunity for fun, what, are, what do you do for fun? Oh boy, um, what I do for fun, I really, I'm kind of a really person. I like to hang out with my family a lot, um, whether that be my husband and my daughter or my extended family. My parents live really close, um, like two miles from my home. so. Uh, that's been interesting and good at the same time. And then my in-laws live about an hour away. So um, my husband's part of a big family. So we like to hang out with family a lot. Good. So now, Cody, are you from the Rockford area or? So that's always a tough question for me. Um, I would say, I would say that I grew up here. This is the place I've lived the longest. Okay. I was born in Denver, Colorado, okay. or more specifically. Um, and then my parents moved us down to Florida and we lived in Kissimmee and then we moved up to Georgia and Marietta and then back down to Florida um, and then here. So I would say this is the longest place I've been. Um, so I would consider I grew up here. Gotcha. And so when, when, uh, so when did you, how old were you when you guys moved to Rockford and any, any reason why your parents settled in Rockford? Yes. So my parents are originally from Illinois. They're from the Peoria area. And so they always lived in Illinois until they were 18. They moved to LA and then we did all those moves. Um, my dad is an aircraft technician, so his job kind of moves all over the place. When Continental closed down, we moved up to Georgia, and then UPS offered him a job, and um, he's been there ever since, and kind of taken him pretty cool places. So um, that's why we moved up here, and we've stayed for so long. Gotcha. So he, so then he would have been one one of the original ones when UPS created their hub here in here in Rockford area. So. Okay. been there for a long time, so I, I, I definitely believe so. Gotcha. And then you graduated from what high school? Hananiga. okay. And were you involved with activities at Hananiga, like extracurricular activities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was on the dance team and I was on the track team as well. Um, I did band freshman year. I would have loved to continue, um, but with being on the dance team and the band, um, marching band, you had to choose. So my heart was with dance, so I stayed. Okay. And, and so what, what, uh, when you think back to that time period, what influenced you to get into um, the arts, dance, and, and then music, and, and what, what kind of influenced that? I got to be honest, I never, you know, I was very uncoordinated. My parents were very concerned that I wanted to be a dancer. Um, I'm very clumsy, still am, but for some reason I was able to be graceful when I was dancing. Um, and I would have to attribute a lot of that to my older sister. 
Um, we're 16 months apart. She graduated a year before I did, but she did dance and I thought it was really cool to watch. So in middle school, I kind of followed her lead and I joined dance as well. Gotcha. Okay. And, and so speaking of the uh, like lineup of kids, uh, so you have an older sister and any other siblings? Nope. Just her and I. Uh, and you guys are 16 months apart. Yes. Wow. That, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's uh, close enough to be like, kind of like twins, but uh, far enough away that you're not right. <laughs> so, oh yeah. It was so. definitely, it was, it was really cool growing up and you know, even now it's really neat to have that um, really close relationship that we have now. So. And she lives around here too, or no? Gotcha. Okay. And then after Hananiga, what did you do after Hananiga? So I went off to college at NIU um, and I lived in the dorms there and then we got our own apartment. Um, my now husband, we've been there together. We've been together since I was 15. So um, we went to different high schools um, about an hour apart, but um, we decided to go to college together. We dormed two doors down from each other, which my father was not happy about. Uh, <laughs> But we did, and um, we stayed there, and I did five years at NIU because I changed my major halfway through. So So what was your major originally? It was nursing. Okay. All right. So I just truly didn't know what I wanted to do, how I wanted to help. And in my opinion, in school, um, they really only teach you a handful of careers that are out there, at least in my era growing up. Um, I think now they're doing a better job of teaching what's out there and, you know, the more different professions that they have. Um, so I just saw helpful, you know, personality, nursing, let's do it. So uh, ended up it was not for me. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And then, uh, you, so you switched into, what was your, what did you end up graduating? What major was your I graduated with family and child uh, studies and with an emphasis on child development. Okay. And at that time, what were you, I mean, you wanted to help people. What were you thinking that you, and, and if you were like I was, I, I would, it was that broad. I wanted to help people, but I had no clue yeah. um, what jobs were out there or anything like that. Yeah. So um, they had us do, it was a mandatory internship at a preschool and a daycare at NIU. And I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do, but I would have loved, I loved doing like the developmental assessments um, so I really wanted to focus on being a developmental specialist. Okay. Gotcha. And so that, and that kind of came in reflection of the internship, but also some of the things that you were studying. And mm -hmm. so then once you graduated, what was your, your first job that you. Well, that's where it gets tricky um, <laughs> okay. because I got pregnant three months before I graduated. Uh, okay. And we went on that journey first, um, and then I, I was still at my retail job in DeKalb for quite some time. Okay. So I was kind okay. of lost. <laughs> okay. And, and, what, and, what, and I forget what your husband's name is? Ethan. Ethan. Okay. And so you and Ethan have, have been together since you were 15, but you've been now married and, and, and have created a life. How long, how long have you guys been married? Oh dear. Um, we've been married. It's 2011. So nine years, nine years. Okay. Okay. And so, so yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that journey because you, is Ethan the same age as you or is he a little bit older? Yep. We graduated the same year. It's same. just baby with my class. So. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, so, he, uh, but Ethan was from where, where, where did he go to? 
I'm sorry. Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake. So okay. We went to Prairie Ridge High School, um, and it was kind of a odd thing that we met. Um, my hairdresser at the time, she mentioned her cousin was moving to town, and he was a 15-year-old boy. He'll be he would be a sophomore with me. Um, and she was like, hey, can you meet him so he at least knows somebody in the school? So I was willing and I met him and his name was Colin and he introduced Ethan and I because Ethan and Colin had grown up together. They were neighbors. I mean, they were both, they both had big families and they just were like brothers. Um, so Ethan would come every weekend to visit Colin and then I would hang out with them and, you know, the rest is history. Gotcha. So, so it all goes back to the hairdresser being the yes. matchmaker indirectly. Yes. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> and, and so, and so uh, did Ethan go to college right away too? Yes. He went to NIU with me as well. Oh yeah. You said, yeah, you yes. guys were in the same dorm room. Yes. And, then, um, and what did he, what did he study? <clears throat> so he actually didn't graduate from NIU. Um, he actually graduated from Kishwaukee college he went two years at NIU and then junior year, he came home, not, walked in our front door in our apartment and said, I think I'm going to go withdraw from my classes. I want to be a police officer. And it was the first time I had ever heard that. Um, but he had said he'd been thinking about it for years. Um, and now he is a police officer. And that is just, I couldn't think of a more fitting job for him. Okay. And, and so, uh, so he went to, is that what he studied police science at Kishwaukee? No, it was actually math education um, at NIU. And then he went and he just needed, because NIU is a four-year college, you couldn't get your associates there. So he technically would have had his associates, but he had to transfer to Kishwaukee for 15 credits to receive a degree there. So he went and got his EMT and took a couple other classes. Um, and then he just graduated with his associates in science. Gotcha. Okay. And then he, he's working as a police officer and he's, where is he working as a police officer? He works in Belvedere. Okay. So he, he's been with the Belvedere police for how long? Seven years, eight years, something like that. We lose track. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and so, uh, so you guys, uh, he's, he, uh, you guys have been, to, been married for nine years. Um, you have, you uh, are pregnant and now everything's fast forwarding, right? And fast forwarding regarding family life and, but also career wise is now getting kind of maybe not moving at the same speed as family life is. And so, so tell us a little bit how you navigated through, through all that. So um, it was definitely something I had wanted was a family, you know, right after college. Um, but I had pictured a career first. Sure. Um, I was always very career goal, like goal oriented. I really wanted to be a working woman. I wanted to be independent. Um, I wanted to share that responsibility that we have as a marriage. Um, I never really wanted to be a stay at home mom. And so I but I really wanted family. So um, we got pregnant, like I said, three months before I graduated college. Um, he was testing for police departments. Um, actually, he might have actually been already on the police department at that point. Um, it's been so long, so I kind of lose track of where we've been. But um, so I kind of put myself, my career aside to start a family. And I was okay with that because 
because I switched from nursing to child development, I wasn't incredibly passionate about child development. Um, I liked it and it was something that I was interested in. It was just something that was going to get me out of college without having to take too much extra time. So for me, it was just a degree. Um, in the back of my mind, if I, if I self-reflect, I kind of knew I would never use it. Um, but at the time, you know, you're telling yourself like, you'll use it, you'll use it. Um, but so I really put my career aside and my degree aside and I, I really encouraged Ethan with his, his career. So. Gotcha. Okay. And, and so, um, so, so then, uh, so Ethan's on the police force now, um, you're pregnant and, and, and making this, making a conscious decision. Okay. I'll do retail while I'm pregnant and, and continue that path. Um, were you guys living, living in DeKalb then, or were you commuting back and forth or what were you guys doing? Yeah. So, um, when I, it was kind of like a boom, boom, boom when I graduated. So I, we were living in a home in Sycamore, um, my fifth year of college and he was already on the force. So we knew we had to be within a certain mileage of Belvedere. And with me growing up in Rockton, I was like, you know what, I kind of want to go back there. So we actually bought a home um, in April. I graduated in May, but we bought it in April. Um, so we were, I was graduating. We were in the process of moving into our new home, back home in Roscoe. I was still working uh, in DeKalb in retail. And so I was commuting and he was commuting to Belvedere. So. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I mean, and I, and I know, uh, not exactly the same, but we had, uh, Diane and I had got engaged. We bought a home uh, a few months after we got engaged, but I was in graduate school, so I was commuting quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I was, I was working full time in Rockford. I was going to Champaign three days a week because back then you had to be in person. So Monday through Wednesday, I was I was in Champaign going to school, and then Thursday through Sunday I was working at the hospital. And so there was there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between Diane and I. We had this home, but it was almost a hundred percent on on Diane also getting the wedding, which was probably good that I was just like not available um, to get in the way. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know how I would have been an asset at all it, it, getting ready for the wedding. So I would have helped out. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so you're, you're pregnant. Um, Ethan's working at this time. You're doing some commuting. Did you stay working at, even after graduating, did you stay working in DeKalb with that commute? I worked there for another year, I believe. Okay. Okay. So, so tell, I, I know that, you know, one aspect of some of the setbacks that you've had was with, with the pregnancy, with, um, with the baby. So tell us a little bit about what happened with his first pregnancy. Absolutely. So, um, both my husband and I, we were super excited. We were trying um, just quicker than we had thought. Um, so by the time we moved, we moved back here. Things were great. Um, I had my normal appointments. And, you know, things were going well, things were progressing well, you know, we made it past our, you know, the 12 week safety net. So we were really excited. We announced it to our family. We announced it to the public um, via Facebook at the time. Um, so it, we got a lot of support. Everything was wonderful. And then it kind of took a, a bad turn when we went for 
um, the anatomy scan, which is your 20 week scan, which most people um, think of it as the gender reveal, which I used to too, but now I know a lot more than <laughs> what I would like to know. Um, but so we went in for a 20 week ultrasound um, and the ultrasound technician just kind of dropped the Doppler and kind of got real weird and was like, I gotta go get the doctor. So my husband and I, you know, it's our first baby, we're young. I think we were 22 at the time. My husband's, you know, looking at me, he's like, it's gotta be twins, it's gotta be twins. And, I'm, and I could, I was always really good at reading people. And I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, something's not right. Um, but we didn't know anything. We didn't know how to look at an ultrasound. We couldn't really, you know, I wasn't good at that at the time. I didn't know what a baby looked like on the screen. Um, so um, she brought the doctor back and he's doing the ultrasound and he's kind of just nodding his head and he's like, mm -hmm, yeah, okay. Um, so then he tells us, he says, I'm going to go send you over to MFM. And both my husband and I look at each other and we're like, well, what's MFM? You know, we don't know what that is. And he said, it's maternal fetal medicine, which I still didn't know what it was at the time. He said, you're going to go see the doctor. You're going to walk over to the hospital. He cleared his entire afternoon for you. And then we're going to go from there. I had no idea the gender. We didn't know if she was alive at the time. We didn't know anything. So here we are, 22, walking over, um, just kind of like, well, what's going on? You know, we don't know. Um, and I was very lucky that my mother worked at the same hospital. So I called her. She came on down. Um, and we walked over to maternal um, fetal medicine. And I remember signing in. And I couldn't remember my own birthday because I was so just kind of like in a daze, like what's happening. And, you know, of course, being a first time mom and a mom in general, you know, you think the worst case scenario, like sure. this baby's already gone, you know, what do I have to do next? And here I am 20 weeks, I'm already showing and we're halfway through, you know, so you don't think anything could go wrong because you made it past the 12 weeks, right? So you right. think everything should be Fine. Um, so we get in there and um, the doctor does an ultrasound. It's another like 45 minutes until they say a word. Um, so it was definitely a long, a long, long afternoon for us. And then he tells us that our daughter has high drops and we don't even know what that means at the time. But then he's like, okay, so we're going to go over to the consultation room and we're going to what high drops is, what we can expect and things like that. So, so we do that. We go over to the consult room and he sits us down with our parents. Um, uh, I think if I remember right, I think it's only my parents because I was so in a fog. Um, my dad had driven up at that point. Um, and he said that high drops is a symptom of a disease and it's where there's fluid in two or more parts of the body. So for our daughter, we found out it was a girl in this consult, um, but our, for, for her, she had fluid around her skin, which was called edema, and then she had it um, around her lungs, which was pleural effusions, so, which meant her lungs couldn't develop. So the, the fluid was restricting her lungs. Wow. So we couldn't figure out why um, we had the high drops. Um, and that's kind of where the next step goes is kind of figuring out, okay, boom, we have to figure out what is causing this fluid to build up. 
Um, it can be a number of things, but it's really, really, really rare. Um, and my doctor at the time had been practicing for over 30 years and he had never seen it on an ultrasound. So um, it happens in less than 1% of pregnancies. And it just so happened to be us. And we just kind of went on that journey. So after that, we opted to get an amniocentesis, which I had no idea what that was at the time. Um, I don't think we do now, I've had several. So um, just to kind of figure out the cause. And so at that, at that time, with the amniocentesis that was able to give you at least some kind of direction of what may have been the cause? So that was the idea, yes. Um, so the idea was that this amnio, we would get enough of the baby's fluid and DNA that we could figure out what the cause of this hydrops is. Now hydrops is typically a structural issue, a chromosomal issue, or um, usually like a virus of some sort. Like if I got a virus, then the baby was developed this and was sick. Um, so we did all this genetic testing and all of it came back normal. There was no sign of anything that should have caused this hydrops. Okay. Um, so we were transferred to um, a hospital in Chicago and we were definitely a rare case there. We had an entire board of directors, a whole team of doctors, um, phenomenal, phenomenal team. Um, and they did everything that they could and they monitored us throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, but every week we'd go in, we would hear the same thing. You know, she's probably going to die this week. You probably won't come in and we won't have a heartbeat next week. So um, she kept surprising us. So, so yeah. that, so those are not what we necessarily would call encouraging words, right? No, uh, no. actually, um, if I recall right, my mother did not like this doctor. I loved him because he was so blunt, but my mom did not like the fact that he was very blunt um, because he was the first doctor that actually said the words die. Um, he actually said like, your baby is probably going to die. It's not going to live here um, because the doctor in Rockford was very sugar coating, very comforting, like, we're going to figure this out. Everything's okay. Um, and I didn't, now I look back, I didn't need that. I needed the bluntness. I needed sure. the, you know, the, he's going to die kind yeah. of work. So just for a moment, right. And, and, and obviously this is, I mean, every situation is different, right. And even, even if someone has had a similar circumstance, it's, it's still their own unique journey. Right. And, and I, and I think of the, the way that you're describing it, I think of individuals who have had, um, a child, you know, regardless of the age, and they were diagnosed with a terminal illness. And, and there is that percentage that they may be able to go into remission, but there is a greater likelihood that, um, that they're not going to be able to survive into long, long-term adulthood. Right. And, um, and so I, um, so that's what it just reminds me. So when, when you were getting this news, you know, the statement from this doctor in Chicago, like week after week, um, that, well, it may be another week, but most likely. So what internally, what were you doing? I know, and I know you're probably still in a shock. And Oh, yeah. Um, that was definitely very, very difficult for us. Um, because we had just moved into our new home, um, we had a um, housewarming party that weekend after we found out like your baby's going to die pretty much. Um, 
that was really difficult for us because we didn't tell, we told our family, our family knew, um, but we didn't tell of all, all of our friends yet and all of the extended family. So everybody was very excited and was like, oh, are you guys so excited? And so we kind of had to pretend. And a lot of that happened throughout the entire pregnancy. I would go to the grocery store and, you know, I would, I carried big, you'll, you guys will find out more in a little while why I carried big, but um, I carried very big with her. So a lot of you know, older people would comment or, you know, people would just comment at a, at a store or wherever I was at, you know, and ask me the due date and how excited I was and if this was my first. And so it was a lot of pretending, and a lot of kind of dissociation, I would say, yeah. kind of separating myself from it. And, and in, the, in the midst of everything that's going on in society, right, today with division and people being, you know, being you know, a lot of negativity and things, those individuals, random strangers, right? They're just being kind, right? They're just being endearing. But because of the circumstances, they didn't know what they didn't know. And, and so we still, um, so I still would encourage people to be kind and, uh, and, but we don't necessarily know what everybody's story is. And Absolutely. It definitely changes. Um, my story has changed how I approach pregnant women, what I say to pregnant women, um, just because I know what it's like to have to pretend that things are okay. Um, and, and I would never get upset with any, any person who's ever asked me and who didn't know, um, because you didn't know, how would you, how are you supposed to know? You know? So. Gotcha. so, so fast forwarding, um, the, your daughter did not make it correct. You did not. We went in, we had weekly appointments in Chicago and we went in one week and it, the morning started off just kind of odd. That week was very different. Um, I would sleep on my side and I would have fluid in my face mm. and then I, you know, sit up and it would kind of like, it was really gross. It just kind of like dispersed evenly. Um, and it all just happened in a, in a matter of seven days. And I had gained 20 pounds of just fluid in a week. Mm. And so when I got to my doctor's appointment, I remember I couldn't put my shoes on. I couldn't, my toes didn't touch the floor. And I thought it was, you know, normal pregnancy swelling. Cause again, this was my first, um, but I got into my appointment. The doctor was very alarmed and he was like, I didn't recognize you when you walked in. You're very, very sick. Um, we have to make a choice today, right now. You have to choose, do you want your life or do you want your daughter's? So I developed what was called mirror syndrome. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. I was mirroring the syndrome of my daughter. So I was carrying fluid. I was in major organ failure. Um, I had blood pressure that was through the roof. So he said, if you wanna try and make it, I doubt you'll make it to next week, um, but you can try. Um, immediately then my husband was like, absolutely not like get this baby out. We need, I need my wife. Um, and I was, you know, a mom at the time and I felt very helpless. So I wanted to help my daughter in the way, best way that I could. We had already been through, um, what I didn't mention before we had been doing, um, intrauterine blood transfusions for my daughter. Um, they would do blood transfusions in the OR via my stomach um, because she was so anemic. Um, and then when I got sick, that had to stop and I had to decide if I wanted my life or hers. That is a, that is a position that no one should be put in. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Um, so obviously we chose my life. I, I, it took me a long time to stop feeling guilty about that. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely do today feel not, don't feel guilty about it. Um, but it took me a long time yeah. to not feel guilty. So we went up to labor and delivery. I was induced and then it was a horrible labor. Um, I wasn't conscious. Um, I woke up at one point, a nurse was on top of me cause she got stuck. Um, so we had an entire team in the room who was supposed to get her out and get the fluid around her lungs and put her on an ECMO machine, which they blocked the carotid artery and developed her lungs, um, which was very risky anyways, but that was our plan. Um, but with Eliana getting stuck and me not being conscious and everybody in panic, uh, it didn't work out that way. And she actually ended up passing in the birth canal um, so I woke up to my husband telling me she's gone. They had been working on her for 45 minutes. I had to call it that, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. I can't even imagine Cody. Um, like, like I said, no, no person should have to go, you know? Um, so I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, so, so tell us a little bit, I mean, I mean, because there's, a, you know, we talk about the idea of um, with traumatic death, um, it, it complicates the grief process. And, and I can't even imagine how many different layers of complications. I mean, yeah, there's certain things that the doctors were able to tell you about the possibility of why is this happening. But, but even on a grander scale of that bigger, why is this happening? Um, and then the decisions that you guys had to make, and then even the complications within that. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the initial stages afterwards. So obviously when I woke up to my husband telling me that my daughter was gone, I was completely shocked because although we were only given a 10% survival rate, you never actually think it's gonna be your kid. That's not gonna be the miracle. Yeah. Um, so I had very high hopes going to, everybody did. Nobody knew what was gonna happen. Um, everybody was like, this baby's gonna make it. Well, you know, it's gonna be a rough journey, but she'll make it. Um, so initially, you know, holding her for the first time, I had never held a newborn baby, let alone a dead one. And they're trying to hand her to me and I didn't know if I wanted her yet. Um, I kind of had to process like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. Um, and everybody's in the room crying, the doctors, the nurses, everything, just because it was such a traumatic delivery. Um, and it was just so surreal to go back and look and say, okay, now I have to deal with this. I have to build my life around a infant loss. Um, so I would say going home from the hospital without my baby was probably the hardest thing. Um, I had to do during that journey. Um, but once I got home, you know, I had to recover because the birth was very traumatic to my body. Um, so it took a couple months for me to recover. Um, my husband got to go back to normal life after a couple weeks, he went back to his job, but I couldn't. So that was a big struggle for me. Um, but I knew that I had to move forward. I knew that I couldn't be stuck on this. Um, so it brought my husband and I closer, which I didn't really think was possible. Um, and we really leaned on each other. Like if I would have a bad day, he'd support me. If he would have a bad day, I would support him. And, you know, we just really, really 
engulfed ourselves in the grief process and I allowed myself to feel all these feelings. And it, it was just very intense, obviously, because, you know, we shut the door to her room, everything that was prepared, you know, all that kind of stuff, all your dreams are gone. Um, so I would say just really engulfing myself in the grief process and really allowing myself to feel there was a lot of crying, a lot of, you know, um, embarrassment, disappointment. I felt like I let a lot of people down, um, even though I know it wasn't my fault. Um, you just have all those kind of shameful feelings. Sure, sure. And even though you did have uh, some college courses, right, in, in certain things, uh, at that time, did you, did, I mean, you, you, you refer to it as, you know, embracing the grieving process and those types of things, but were you cognizant of that's what you were doing at the time or now was it more looking back on it? That's kind of what happened. I would say about halfway through, I was finally like cognizant of it. Okay. Um, in the beginning, I was just kind of like in it and I, I was kind of in that grief fog. I really didn't know what was happening. Um, I go back and I really don't have a whole lot of memory of those days afterwards. Sure. Um, that's just the residual trauma. But um, I go back and I think about it and I think it wasn't until that grief fog cleared probably about halfway through about six months later is when I finally realized like, oh, you're doing this. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And, and so slowly um, things, you know, when I say normalize, meaning mm -hmm. your, your body starts healing, you're able to do things that you may have been able to do, you know, six months earlier or whatever. And, um, but emotionally and mentally there, things are not, you, you don't, you don't get amnesia, right? You, there's, it's, you're different because of it. Um, and so you, you move on, you're moving through life and, and Ethan's and doing, doing life and, um, and you start rebuilding the marriage, start rebuilding the family, right? So tell us a little bit about uh, kind of that process. Yeah, absolutely. So I stayed in retail for a little bit longer. Um, my boss at the time was phenomenal and would just continue to put in vacation days. So it looked like I was working. Um, so I would get paid a little bit here and there. And he was really, really, really amazing. So I continued to work in retail. And then once I kind of rebuilt myself back up and Ethan built himself back up, we decided, all right, I think it's time to try again. I think we can do this again. You know, we were told we never found out a reason why Eliana had the high drops and why she actually died. Um, so they just assumed that it was a fluke and that it happens in less than 1% of pregnancies anyhow. So you guys should be safe. You're fine. Um, so we get pregnant again. Um, and at this point I was in a job transition. I started um, as an administrative assistant for a financial firm because that job just kind of fell in my lap. Um, and I was so lost at the time that I was, I took it and I was like, sure, let's do this. So um, I started working there. Um, I found out shortly after working there, I was pregnant. Um, and that would have been with Adeline. And so it was very um, a nerve wracking pregnancy that I was very closely monitored, um, ultrasounds weekly, you know, same kind of deal, just very closely monitored. And I was at a regular OB. I didn't have to have a specialist, which was really cool. Um, so I actually delivered here in Rockford 
um, the 20 week scan was healthy, everything was healthy. Um, and then I had Adeline um, actually right after the Super Bowl. So um, we felt like we finally did it. It was really a really cool feeling. And, and, and how old is Adeline now? Oh, she's four and a half. <laughs> so, so four and a half. And absolutely beautiful. You just you just posted some pictures of the three of you guys, and it's just <laughs> a, absolutely beautiful. And she, so four and a half. She's in like, like a preschool, right? So, preschool. Okay. So, so, so that that feeling, and I've ha- I've had other families, moms and dads, you know, feel like, you know, okay, you know, not knowing that uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's, if it's the first, uh, if it's the first pregnancy, right. And then it's a, just not knowing. And so, so now it's the three of you guys and, and, uh, she's, she's healthy and everything's kind of moving along. Um, but that isn't the end of the story though. <laughs> that is not the end. Um, so everything was great moving along. I got back from maternity leave. I worked the same job as administrative assistant. Um, we're just kind of getting into our regular lives, like what our new normal was. Um, like I said, my daughter was really young. She was only six months old. And then we found out, holy moly, we're pregnant again. Um, so it was definitely a shock to us, but, uh, we were very excited because we had had a successful pregnancy. So we were like, this is really cool. We're gonna be growing our family. We're very excited. Um, we told our family, uh, and it turns out my sister was pregnant at the same time. So we were two weeks apart, which was so unique to do and very cool. I loved it. It was her first, um, but my technically third at the time, um, but hopefully second living child. So I was very, very excited. Um, so, um, when we found out we were pregnant with her, everybody was very excited because we had had a healthy pregnancy. So nobody had any suspicion anything could go wrong. Um, but same deal. We had a really good first half of the pregnancy. And then at our 20 week ultrasound, the gender reveal, um, we found out in fact, it was another girl, but this time she also had high drops. Okay. So, yeah. And, and so then that wave of fear mm-hmm. comes back in. Oh, absolutely. And in I'm guessing even more now that idea that the what what was the percentage of babies that survive? Uh it was a ten percent survival rate. Yeah. And my guess is is that that wasn't necessarily um, you you I know for me I don't know if I would think I would round two I don't know if I would be as confident I may act confident but I don't know um, on the inside if I would be as confident um, yeah most definitely I certainly acted confident um, but I was not I did not have hope um, it was kind of a, it was a really dark pregnancy um, just because. With Eliana, as hard as it was being our first child, I didn't already have a child to know what that bond was like. Mm-hmm. So I knew having a bond with Adeline, what I would be missing out on once Avery came and you know she did end up passing away. But, um, but before that, we actually were able to find a cause and as to why this is happening for us. Um, 
it just so happened that just a couple weeks after ultrasound, this lab in Washington, D.C. released this brand new um, chromosomal test. And we were the first ones to ever order it on the market. Um, it was very expensive, but um, luckily they made a bit of a mistake. So uh, we didn't have to pay as much as what we were having to. So um, we did this test, it took nine weeks to get back. And in the middle of this test, we found out that not only did Avery have um, high drops, she also had what's called Turner syndrome. So um, if she was born, she wouldn't be healthy. Um, for those unfamiliar with Turner syndrome, it's more of a physical um, disease. It's not any sort of intellectual inabilities. It's more of the physical inability. So she would be shorter in stature. She'd have a wider neck, um, those kinds of things. Um, so she might have some delayed speech, just things like that. So um, we knew that that would be a challenge in and of itself um, if she made it, but we were willing to take on that challenge. So we were offered termination, but we denied um, because we were like, let's, let's see where this goes. Let's try this again. And, and yeah, so, uh, so tell us how uh, was Avery, did Avery go full term? So we were 33 weeks with her um, and I walked in again and I was very sick. Um, he monitored me a lot closer this time, mm -hmm. but instead of carrying the fluid throughout my body, I carried it all in my, in the amniotic sac. Um, so I was giant with her. Um, people would be like, wait, there's not more than one baby in there. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, it was, people almost didn't believe me that there was only one child in there, um, but she was swimming in this just giant pool of fluid. Um, so a normal woman is supposed to have about 20 centimeters of fluid at the end of their pregnancy, 20 to 25, and I had over 60. Oh, goodness. So three about three times the amount. Absolutely. So when you were talking about delivery, um, the higher amount of fluid you have, the more risk you have. So my doctor was very cautious in telling me, but he still had to tell me that he wasn't sure that I would make it out of my C-section. That you physically would not make it. So once again, you, you the mom are at risk mm -hmm. as well as obviously the baby, mm -hmm. uh, Avery's at risk as well. Absolutely, so once again, I was facing her and I had already had a healthy child. Um, but this time we didn't tell our family. Um, I don't know if that was a good choice or a bad choice at this, at this point, um, but we didn't wanna worry them even more than they already had to be worried. So my husband and I knew that there was a good chance I wouldn't make it out of the C-section, but our families did not. Um, so we had a wonderful um, team of doctors and nurses. They actually hired this professional photographer photographer to follow us around for the entire day and capture everything, which was amazing. And um, there's pictures of that are hard for me to still look at, um, but pictures of me hugging my family and my sister and my dad and everybody and even Adeline and uh, me thinking this might be the last time I'm hugging them and they have no idea. So, so sometime I'm going to have Ethan on the show so that I can get uh, a dad slash husband's perspective on this because um, I can't even I can't even imagine um, what he what he must have been feeling like um, 
and and knowing that you guys had agreed not to you know share that with anybody um so yeah i, I can't even imagine so um so uh so you go to have the c-section obviously you get through the c-section um but uh what uh what what happens with avery so avery gave us a run for our money um she gave us a lot of hope uh she came out um, and she was crying, which they did not think she could do because she didn't have that lung capacity. Mm-hmm. She came out, she was crying. Um, it was so beautiful to listen to. Um, and then immediately they had to start working on her to get her where she could breathe on her own. Um, so they took her over to the table um, and the entire NICU team was phenomenal. They were working on her. We had already had a bunch of appointments with the doctors to say we wanted quality of life over quantity of life. So if they didn't think she would truly make it, I don't want her going up to the NICU. I would rather her die in our arms. So we had made that choice prior um, and our neonatologist was very aware of that. Um, So she came out, like I said, crying, but she had an APGAR score of six out of seven, which was wonderful. That's almost like a healthy child. Um, So, you know, the nurses are going out and telling our parents like, oh my gosh, you know, she's she's crying. She's got a really high APGAR score. And, um, and then all of a sudden it kind of took a turn for the worse again. So they put her on, they did a thoracentesis where they took the fluid from her lungs and she wasn't trying to breathe on her own. Um, so they hooked her up to some oxygen and then the neonatologist came over and talked to Ethan and I to decide, okay, so this is the deal. This is what's happening. She's not trying to breathe on her own. I don't think she'll be able to breathe on her own. What do you want to do? Um, so both Ethan and I just kind of look at each other and we both know the plan, but neither one of us can verbalize it. Um, and so I, I looked at Ethan and I said, you have to make this choice. And, and I know that was so heavy to put on him, but I couldn't live with myself if we may, if we had different choices and my choice was first. So, um, he actually said, we're going to let her go. And, um, I looked at him and we both started crying and uh, that was when it was like, okay, we both had the same choice in our minds. You know, we have a plan, but when it comes to actually executing that plan, when it's your child, you know, so, so much of you is screaming, like do everything you can. Um, A lot of us also had to scream. We have to give her quality of life over quantity. Right. Right. And yeah. And I can't, again, I can't even imagine being in that, being in that situation, even though you do have a plan, even though you've probably had multiple discussions about what to do with all these different things. And maybe even we could go as far as saving, like you guys were, had trained each other, trained with each other for those moments, but that doesn't necessarily mean with all that adrenaline, with everything that's happening, that it's easy to still do that. Right. Well, and especially because we had so much hope and then it just, um, because we went in with no hope and then she gave us hope and then it was like, oh wait, never mind. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Just the emotional roller coaster uh, of of that. So we ended up, they had her on oxygen, they gave her to us. um, And then we were wheeled back to our room where it was just the two of us um, where they removed her oxygen. Um, So at that point it was just her, me and Ethan Um, just sitting there with her kind of spending some time and at this time it was flu season so kids were not allowed in the hospital but they made an exception for Adeline. Um, I know we got a lot of dirty looks from other families (laughs) but uh, they didn't understand the situation which is fine 
Um, but so Adeline got to come in and meet her and get pictures with her and everything while she was still living and breathing. Um, so that was really, I don't even, I don't even have a word for it. Um, surreal and just beautiful to watch. Um, Adeline was one at the time, um, cause their birthdays were only three weeks apart. So it was just so cool for her to like meet her younger sister and just, you know, because we knew she wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise. So at that point, we brought everybody else in. Um, everybody got their chance to hold her and talk to her and, you know, while she was still breathing. And then, um, you know, they would come in quite often and and they would take her heart rate and it was just lowering and lowering and lowering. Um, and then finally, uh, it took a long time for me to get over this part, but I fell asleep because I couldn't hang on any longer mm. um, because of all the medication from the just everything in general. I fell asleep and um, I woke up and she had already passed. Um, so I was angry at everybody because nobody bothered to wake me up, you know, but I, I got over that. I was, I was fine with it. Um, and I was always afraid to ask like whose arm she died in because our whole family was there. Um, and then later on, I found out it was my husband's. So I thought that that was what I needed for sure. So, um, and the odds are, right, listening to you as a mom, the odds are if you would have been awake, um, you would have been holding her. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was the way it was supposed to be. I think so. Yeah. So, um, but, but this time the grieving process is going to be a little bit different, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry. Say again. No, I pushed it away for sure. Okay. And and it's and it's going to be different because you have a little one-year-old distraction running around, or at least moving around, right? <laughs> so, and so, so, um, so, so tell us a little bit about that, and 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 then, but also that grieving process has led to you really making some major changes in your life. Um, you, you're not an executive assistant anymore. You're not, you know, unless that's your role with Ethan, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so after we got home with Avery and funeral home, everything, like all that was finished. Um, I was still in the same job. I went back after maternity leave and I just, I couldn't grieve. Every time I would try, I would try and cry. I would try and do all this. I just couldn't. I think I put a block up to say, you know, you already did this. You built your life up. You built yourself up from the ground up two years ago. And here we have to do it again. So I really, really pushed it away. I pushed Ethan away. I just kind of, I engulfed myself into my daughter too much, um, where the only role I knew how to be was a mom. I forgot how to be a wife. I forgot how to be a worker. I forgot how to be a daughter. I forgot how to be an aunt because my sister had her son shortly after. Um, and it, I, I really struggled with that. And um, it took a long time for me to have a bond with him. Um, and now he's, he's my little buddy. So I love him more than anything. But um, so I really, really pushed it away. And I, and I figured out that this is when I need to seek counseling. This is when I need to seek somebody who specializes in grief, who's familiar, maybe not with my story, but what's with familiar with the darkness. Um, and so I did, I sought grief counseling. I started going and probably about 
six months in, just a light bulb went off in my head and was like, oh my gosh, this is what you're supposed to be doing with your life. You're supposed to be a grief counselor. You know, I was always one where people trusted or came to advice for, but I never saw that as a skill. I never thought of it as a skill. And here I am sitting in grief counseling and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. I want to be this for somebody because the way that my, my therapist changed my life and held that flashlight for me was just something I could never repay them for. So I wanted to hold the flashlight for somebody else. So I started on a journey. I still worked um, as an assistant, but I decided I want to look into master's programs. I want to go back to school and I want to be a therapist and I want to specialize in grief. Um, So I did. Um, I did a lot of my homework um, with with Adeline. It was not easy, um, but I did. And I got out and I graduated. And I mean, now I'm here and it's just so surreal. It's really, really cool to be on this journey. And I also work with the Haven Network too, um, which is a perinatal hospice and bereavement center. So I work for the family services side um, as a volunteer there. So anytime there's a fetal death, I go up to the hospital if I'm on call. Um, I take care of baby, do handprints, footprints, things like that, and then hand baby back to mom and dad um, and kind of be there for them. And then I'm also their therapist that I do on a volunteer basis as well. So in my spare time, um, I do counsel um, other parents who have lost babies. You know, in um, six months ago, um, yeah, it was probably six months ago because it was the beginning of COVID. I was doing some research on, um, you know, how to go through the healing process of the grief that we're all facing because of the pandemic and because of all the different things happening. And, and, and it, interestingly enough, it led me back to um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work um, regarding the five stages. And that kind of opened up me to David Kessler's work when he came and started working with Ross um, and his journey of his own loss when he was working with uh, Elizabeth and his son died um, from an overdose. And as he was going through that grieving process, um, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it was kind of like uh, there was a light bulb that went off as well. And he, he then added to um, Ross's work and, and stated that the sixth stage of the, what used to be five stages is a sense of meaning um, that comes from it, and and I think for some people that may be listening, it's like, how could there ever be meaning that comes from it? Um, and it's never about the idea that I prefer that the loss happened. It's that as a result of the loss and going through it, something that came from it that wouldn't have come if the loss would have never happened. Um, and I've had other people, you know, Xavier Whitford and, and Laura Gabriella and different individuals that have most recently been on the show, because in that case, death by suicide of, of their sons gave them a sense of, of, of purpose of what can I do um, where they would have necessarily, wouldn't have necessarily done that. And that sounds very much part of your journey um, had, had been 
obviously you'd much rather have four little ones running around your house or three three little ones running around your house. I just let the cat out of the bag because <laughs> you're, it's so, uh, because you're pregnant currently and um, expecting in February. And, and so uh, and then there'll be two little ones running around and, and everything um, because you've been kind of keeping me updated about that things are, uh, healthy and, and moving along and um, the way uh, fully developing and, and the way that uh, allow allow that to happen. You know, Cody, you have uh, you know been working at KP for the last nine months, right? Uh, going on 10 months now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and very much that your own journey of grief and your own journey of yourself has allowed you to be that light for other people in that darkness. So I definitely appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Um, as, as we are kind of wrapping up right now, and I would love to have uh, you come on um, in, in the future and tell, tell us just as you continue developing as a therapist, you know, here at KP and for the Rockford community, but then also as you continue growing as a wife and a, and a mom and as a woman, um, I would love to get your perspective about that, you know, in, in the future sometime if you're open to that. But if you were going to share something for, um, for either for a mom or, or for a family or a dad or anybody going through um, that grieving process, what, what would be something that you would want to share with? Without being too cheesy or cliche, I suppose, um, just to know that there is that light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how long that tunnel looks, no matter how dark it is, there is a light and there is meaning at the end of it. Perfect. So, so Cody, if there was anybody, um, uh, any listeners that wanted to get in contact with you, um, what, what would be like maybe through email, what would be the best email for them to contact you? Um, I would definitely say my KP counseling email because I check that the most. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs> um, so it would just be cbrillo, B-R-I-L-O at kpcounseling.com. Perfect. So Cody, thank you very much for sharing your story. I mean, um, I, I know that it brought up a bunch of emotions within me as I was listening to your story. And I knew it, maybe not all of the story, but I knew a lot of the story. Um, and, and so, but I, I definitely appreciate um, you sharing your story as well as Ethan's story and, and, and all the girls. Um, so thank you very much. And um, well, I will see you later. <laughs> thank you. Okay.